Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast hosted by two childhood best friends dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer, a midwife, a current day pop culture know nothing, but nobody puts baby in a corner when it comes to the pop culture of my youth. And I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's still not over how my so-called life left us hanging. Today we're revisiting an iconic album larger than the stratosphere itself, U2's 1987 masterpiece, The Joshua Tree. We'll be fangirling over the album's revolutionary singles, music videos, sexy AF frontman, and of course, its very special place in our collective hearts. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And just a friendly reminder, we're on Instagram and Facebook at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. But enough shameless self-promotion. Let's talk you to the Joshua Tree. Hey, Kate. Hey, Lori. How's your weekend going? Um, It's good. You know, it's a weekend. I'm excited. How's yours? It's good. I got to spend some time at the beach yesterday. That was really nice. It's a far departure from Joshua Tree, but it was nice nevertheless. See, and you are Joshua Tree adjacent. You could have gone. Yeah. In fact, this is really interesting. I mean, we'll get into the details of the album, but have you ever thought driving through the Joshua Tree area, like, I wonder where that iconic Joshua Tree on the cover of the album, where that lives. Have you ever had that thought? Oh, I never have. But like, it's so interesting, because I usually do have thoughts like that. There's so many Joshua Trees in Joshua Tree. (laughs) (laughs) There are. And really, like on the drive through Death Valley to Las Vegas, I have family in Las Vegas. It's really boring. Like there's nothing to look at. It's just tons and tons of Joshua trees. And I think to myself, I wonder which one of these, I I wonder where it is. I wonder where it lives. But there are people who want to pay homage to the actual Joshua tree featured on the cover art. And you can find the plant remnants. The Joshua tree has died. Hmm. Yeah. But remnants are located about a thousand feet from California Route 190, nine miles west of Death Valley National Park. And devoted fans from all over the world come and they leave tokens at like a makeshift shrine. And there's even a bronze plaque that reads, have you found what you're looking for? Oh, I like that. It's cool. Like people leave dog tags and they were saying, I read an article about it, like metal boxes and trinkets, tokens, and people who really connected with the album. And it's just a collective place to honor you too. And yeah, isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. Now I feel like next time I go to Southern California, I'm going to take a little trip a out little road to, uh, trip. to Death Valley. And I love a road trip. I love road snacks. I feel like you could load right. up on the road snacks. You can play Joshua Tree, full album on your way, and you can do this really epic thing. Yeah, that would that sounds like a cool little... And not cool just for the gram. Like it would be cool for the gram, but like just for your heart and your spirit. Yeah, I just, feel like yeah. it's amazing. And then who knows? Like, you never know. Like, what if you run into another fan out there? You met one of the great loves of your life after George Harrison died at George Harrison's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. This is the best meet cute ever. My friend had asked me when George Harrison died, if I would go and put some flowers or candle on the Beatles star. And I didn't do it. I meant to. I lived 
like a block away from the Beatles Mm -hmm. star. And I I just was busy and I didn't do it. So on George Harrison's birthday, they had a memorial there. So I thought, well, I'll go do it then. And so I made, I think, a little poster and I went and brought candles and somebody was singing. And there was a guy who was like, kept talking to me who I really wasn't into. And I'm watching the guy singing and I was like, how come guys like that never talk to me? Like, it's always like this guy that's talking to me. This other guy. (laughs) But then afterwards, the guy that was singing did talk to me and uh, we dated for a, a long while. Time. Yeah. A long time. And yeah. we're still friends to this day and he's very dear to my heart. So you just never know how like going someplace because music influenced you might change the whole rest of your life. I love that. And I love that, especially right now in COVID times, because we're not gathering at concerts. And I am a huge fan of live music. Surprisingly, I have not seen you two in concert, which is really like, I'm so mad at myself about it, especially with the 30th anniversary tour of the Joshua Tree. They performed the entire album, 2017. And I'm just so angry that I didn't go to that. But that's my favorite thing about going to shows is just being in a shared space with people who love the music as much as you do. We can't really do that right now. So if you find that you take a trip out to the makeshift shrine of the Joshua Tree out in Death Valley and you come upon some people who share your love of the music, I, I feel like that could be really awesome. Right. Wear your masks, stand six feet apart and uh, share some camaraderie. <laughs> around the Joshua Tree. It's so cool. So the Joshua Tree was the fifth studio album from U2. And in thinking about how big this album is, I almost don't even have the words to describe it. But luckily for me, I don't have to because Jordan Runtaw wrote for Rolling Stone in 2017, quote, the plot of the Joshua Tree is essentially an immigrant's tale. Four guys from Ireland set off to find America, and what they discovered left them both invigorated and outraged. And if that doesn't say it all... It really does. It's an interesting thing about the album, right, is that it's for Irish lads. So many of the songs were about America. Yes. Not always in a good light, which is fair. (laughs) It is fair. And John Pirellis of the New York Times wrote in regard to the 30th anniversary Joshua Tree Tour. He said, The songs pondered 1980s America as both myth and presence, its landscape, its ideals of freedom and openness, its culture, its sensuality, its violence. The lyrics addressed spiritual and romantic quests, along with political and economic predicaments, connecting him with the language that drew on the Bible and beat poetry. So it really is a time capsule. It is. And yet as relevant as ever. Right. Also timeless. And you have the quote from Bono that says, I started to see two Americas, the mythic America and the real America. And I think that that is still something that we grapple with, that we see of who are we and and who are we really and who do we want to be? Exactly. And the working title of the album was actually The Two Americas. Yeah. So I think that one of the things for me, and I think for a lot of people, separated you 2 out from other artists and other bands of that same era and into today is that there was just so much behind their music, right? There were so many statements behind the songs and, and everything else that went with it. And so it just 
they always felt a little different to me than any of the other bands that I listened to. Like it just felt a little more meaningful, a little deeper, which it's funny because going back to watch the videos, I was like, Oh, Bono was so pretty. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he appreciates that. That's what I'm remembering about him in this moment. But the point is, is that was not what stuck out to me about him at the time. I mean, I knew he was good looking, but there was just so much more depth there that that wasn't really where my focus went. <laughs> Unlike Sebastian Bach and Skid Row. <laughs> right. No offense to Sebastian Bach. We're None all good at all. At what we're good at. You know, <laughs> you know in 1987, I was really, I was thinking back, like, what was I listening to? And in truth, I was listening to Belinda Carlisle slash Def Leppard. 87, we would have been 11. 11 yeah. 12. So Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth album was everything to me, as was Def Leppard's Hysteria. So I know they're, you know, two opposite sides of a coin, but it wasn't U2 for me. I came to really appreciate U2 in high school, later high school years. So I came to this album a little late. I was introduced to this music at a slumber party where we were watching Rattle and Hum. Oh, okay. The documentary in 1988 yeah. that you two put out, or a rockumentary rather. And I was like, who is this band? I don't know this music. And I just blame the fact that I didn't have an older sibling to like clue me into the awesomeness that is you two. But I think a lot of the messaging would have been really, really lost on me at that age anyway. Oh, it was a lot of it was lost on me. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And the music was actually really different than the music of the time and what I was listening to. So I came to you two via a boy. <laughs> as we so often do. Right. As I mean, and you know, it's an interesting thing that things that end up being really meaningful in your life do often come from significant others in For your sure. world. Or in this case, like he really actually wasn't a significant other. I just had a really You just wanted him to be. And he was cool and like he was so into you two. And he had and good hair. He did have good hair. Yeah. Yes. I remember. That was sort of like how I learned about it because like I just wanted to be interested in you know whatever this person was like the things he likes right and the thing is when you discover things that way some of them stick and some of them don't so the ones that really resonate with you you know do stick and the other things you're like "Eh, whatever so that was definitely one that stuck and so this was really the first album that I came to of course you two had albums before this that like the diehard uh U2 fans like know really well and I don't I mean this was their fifth album Yeah. Well-established band. And so I knew that there was a lot of sort of depth and meatiness to their music and and everything, but I also didn't really have my finger on the pulse of Mm -hmm. current events that were going on to really like understand. (laughs) 11. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't that deep of an 11 year old. (laughs) This album was released on March 9th, 1987. And it was actually the first album to be issued as a new release on three formats, cassette, vinyl, and CD. Ooh, I had yeah. a cassette for sure. It's kind of cool. And this was U2's, or I think maybe even still to this day, best-selling album with over 25 million copies sold worldwide. This album won the 1988 Grammy for Album of the Year. So it was well-received so. also. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, unlike in 2020, how The weekend didn't even get a nomination, which is an abomination, but we can talk about that later. Okay, and this is where my cluelessness about modern day pop culture comes <laughs> in, because I have- You gotta hang out with the youngins. 
On the reissue of the Joshua Tree album, The Sweetest Thing was released, and it was actually recorded during the Joshua Tree sessions as an apology from Bono to his wife for being absent so much in 1986 when they were recording this album. He missed her birthday. The Sweetest Thing was inspired by that, but the song didn't make it into the final cut of the album until the anniversary release. Oh, interesting. It is, because that song was really successful when it was was. reissued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But recorded so long ago. Yeah. Who knew? This album has a million singles. So in deciding what we were going to talk about, Katie's going to help me reel this in. And we're going to try to pick out the highlights, if you will. And I think we should just establish some expectations, which is that like... Give me some boundaries. As much (laughs) as we love you too, and I think that we both do, we are by far not like the experts on you too. So we're just really focusing on like what it meant to us then, what it means to us now to revisit it. And interesting things that came up along the way of discovering That's fair. I feel like I could never adequately do an album this big justice. Right. We're not trying to be the be-all, end-all, like Joshua Tree revisiting. Like, it's good to know your limits. And (laughs) we're just acknowledging our limits. I think we should start with, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yes. This song was their second single. It reached number one in the U.S. It's a song with a strong gospel influence. And... It remains their ninth most played live song, and they play it on every single tour. The video was filmed on Fremont Street in Las Vegas in April of 87 after they performed in that city. And the video, people like it. I mean, it's been viewed over 74 million times on YouTube, but let's talk about it. What were your first impressions? So what I have realized is that I think that my experience of U2 was very much not in videos. When I think about it, like, do I remember this video? Yeah, I guess so. But it just didn't stick in my head. And I was like, wait, they're in Vegas? Because I just don't equate you two and Vegas with each other. (laughs) I feel like it would have maybe been more interesting to me not to talk shit on you too. My Lord, I love this band. But it's like the album is called Joshua Tree. Had they been wandering around the desert? Joshua Tree? Joshua Tree, <laughs> like so looking for Vegas. something not so far from <laughs> Vegas. It seems like it kind of fits a little better. Right. But it was like, hey, we're here. Let's film a video for $10. Because that's kind of like like right. what it looked like, a low budge. We're here anyway. Let's do the thing. Let's do this and like say hi to some fans. And Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a fun video-ish. But in terms of like connecting the lyrics to the video. Right. There's, there's not a lot of, of narrative of storytelling Thank you. going on. You're just like, it's Bono. He looks great. Oh, my God. He looks great. I mean, he's walking through the streets at night. He's wearing a jacket and a bolo. Like, Yes. Right. Iconic. Not everyone is lucky enough to have a Vegas grandma, but I had a Vegas grandma. And so when I see Vegas, it brings back fond memories of my grandma. (laughs) Uh, You know, did your grandma have a favorite casino? Because mine did. Probably somewhere around Fremont Street. It was. It was the El Cortez. So if you're ever in Vegas and you're at the El Cortez, you just think of my grandma. (laughs) Think of Kate's grandma and pay homage to you two on Fremont Street. Because we see Bono walking down the street and it's black and white and then it turns to color and he's inside of a casino and there's people standing around him in a circle as he sings and 
they do this like sort of weird effect. And maybe this was like a cool video effect, but kind of like a slow motion slash stop motion thing Mm -hmm. throughout the video periodically. And honestly, it was making me a little motion sick. I can't watch things like that. I get motion sick scrolling my phone too fast. (laughs) That's a true story. And this is a YouTube thing. Like this was prevalent in a lot of their videos. Yeah, where they sort of fade in and out and like one's faster than the other. And the worst case of this for me in the YouTube video catalog is Mysterious Ways. I can't watch that video. It makes me sick. Oh. I mean, it's all over the place. I literally feel like I'm going to throw up. Isn't that awful? And we pan to the edge or edge. He has a name. It's David Howell Evans. Pretty sure I didn't know that until this very moment. (laughs) He's a sexy man too. Yeah. And he has like a great voice. His voice is like, he's oh, got yeah. that deeper, like, yeah. Yeah. He's walking down the street playing guitar and he's wearing a vest and a hat with like a little playing card in it. So like, he's fun. <laughs> fun guy. Okay. So when Bono sings the lyric, I have kissed holy lips, which Bono, he has a name too. It's Paul David Hewson. Just so you know. Which kind of does change the whole vibe, right? <laughs> Paul bit. David Hewson. Bono. I mean, I don't know. Paul David, like if he had gone by that, I feel like it probably would have been cool. We just don't know that. Yeah. So he kisses this woman and it's really funny because like she seems okay with it. I mean, because why wouldn't you be? And presumably (laughs) consent was reached at some point. I didn't have that thought. I was like, she's so lucky. She walked out of a casino and she got kissed by Bono. When I think of Bono, I think of him being like so very like respectful of women and like not this like rock star bad boy. And so I was kind of like, oh, is this uncomfortable that he just kind of grabbed her and is sort of all over her? Like, did she know this was going to happen? I wondered if she knew it was going to happen too. I did have that question. But more, I was thinking, that's the luckiest woman in the world. I mean, I certainly would have been happy to have had Bono pull me off the street and give me a kiss. Like, she's practically anointed now. Like, I also, if you notice her friends, like, her friends have a little bit of a, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. But I'm like, I almost feel like if that really had just happened, they would have been much more animated about how amazing that was. Okay, but let's also consider this. What if she didn't know who he was? What if she was like, okay, clearly they're a big deal because they're filming something, but who is this person who just grabbed me? Well, she knows now. I wonder where she is now. Like, who is this woman now? Where is she in the world? Because she could have been from anywhere. People from all over the world go to Fremont Street. Right. I don't know. Now I feel like I need to Google it. (laughs) Like, it does say that all the interactions were real, but that, like, the people were not necessarily fans. They were just sort of people people who were on the street out and about. And then it says, afterwards, Bono said to me, Hey, I kissed a lot of people I never met before, didn't I? Do you think that was wise? (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't say who the woman was. This is Las Vegas Review Journal. I love it. The story of U2's 1987 video shoot in downtown Las Vegas. That is so funny. By uh, Jason Brasselin. Very interesting. Now we know. Yeah, now we know that he did not know that lady, that it was a genuine interaction. Well, she's famous forevermore now. Right. There's motorcycle cops. There's a lot of them. There are, yes. Yeah, and we like pan to them often. I don't know if that was supposed to be a statement. But at one point, Bono and Edge are next to each other. And Bono is singing directly into Edge's face. <laughs> like so close, they could kiss. And the Edge just looks away and ignores him. Almost like a 
like an angry girlfriend. Like right. Bono's in his face singing and he's just looking away. Maybe he's like, I can't look directly at Bono. It's like looking into the sun. I don't know. It's <laughs> Or he's just like, dude, I see your face every day. I see your Move face on. every day. <laughs> we see the whole band. They're walking down the street and there's a crowd of people following them. <laughs> Bono does kicky little flamenco dance move. And then he like goes and jumps on the hood of somebody's car. And that's the video. I mean, that was it. Right. So the next video we're going to talk about, Where the Streets Have No Name. Epic video. Crazy story behind it. Yeah. Let's talk about the song before we talk about the video. The Edge wanted to, quote, conjure up the ultimate U2 live song. And when you listen to the intro of the song, I always imagine what it must be like to be in a stadium and just have the opening play. Yeah. Everyone just freaks the F out. I mean, because it really is a song of that caliber. Right. He did it. He created what he called, quote, the most amazing guitar part and song of his life. But the arrangement was super complicated. (laughs) The band was like, WTF, we don't know how to play this live. There's two time signature shifts, lots of chord changes. And according to Wiki, which I hate to quote Wiki, but I actually did watch a documentary on the making of this album about a year ago. So I remember this being said. Co-producer Daniel Lenoy said, that was a science project song. I remember having this massive schoolhouse blackboard, as we call them. (laughs) I was holding a pointer like a college professor, walking the band through the chord changes like a fucking nerd. It was ridiculous. Okay. (laughs) So they're trying to record this song. It's super complicated. And one of the producers, Eno, almost erased the tapes, like, quote, on accident. Like, they just, they couldn't get it right. It was a hot mess. And he was thinking, we need to start over. This is never going to be finished. Everyone was so, like, angry and frustrated. And, but eventually they made it work. Thankfully, he didn't erase the tapes. He was about to, and someone came in and stopped him, and it was all very dramatic. Could you imagine? There's a sliding doors moment. Right? Like, (laughs) Because who knows what it would have been. Right. I mean, maybe we wouldn't. it wouldn't have been a great song. And we'd just be like, oh, right, that, that was a song on this album. That one song, that one time. So the lyrics were inspired by a story that Bono heard in regard to Belfast, Northern Ireland, where depending on the street in which someone lived, you automatically knew their religion and their income. All of this was very obvious to you if you knew what street they lived on. So having streets with no names would be very liberating. Absolutely. It was their third single on the album, and it peaked at number 13 on the U.S. charts. Let's talk the video. (laughs) So the video was filmed atop Republic Liquor Store in downtown L.A. That's at the corner of 7th and Main. It's very densely populated very busy. Right. It's very downtown LA. It's very DTLA. Yeah. And they wanted to put on an entire live concert, not just the filming of the video for this song. So at that time, you could not get concert tickets. The concert was completely sold out for this tour. And so they wanted to just kind of give something to the people. And before they even filmed the video, they had to like spend a week reinforcing the roof for safety. And they added a backup generator just in case the authorities cut the power, which which they they actually did. (laughs) (laughs) They did. So this video won the Grammy for Best Performance Music Video in 1989. So what were your initial thoughts? Because it was very interesting that the video opened to Bullet the Blue Sky. 
Right. I was like, am I on the right video? Like, is this right? Mm -hmm. I was trying to remember if I remembered this happening. Like, did I remember listening to the radio and being like, oh. Because you could hear Rick D's at one point on Kiss FM. There are all these disc jockeys talking about this live concert happening today, this afternoon. And so it's snippets. And I don't know, like, did it happen on a weekday? I mean, there was no chance I was going to be able to get down there from where I lived. We did not live near downtown LA. Uh But then also there was part of me that was like, was this real? Was this happening in real time? Or did they stage it all? That was my question. So I don't know how to pronounce this man's name. M-E-I-E-R-T. Meert. Davis, the director said, quote, getting busted was an integral part of the plan. They wanted to get busted. And 20 years later, band manager Paul McGinnis said that a lot of the confrontation with the police in the video was exaggerated to make the music video more dramatic, but they actually gave them a lot of extensions for shooting the video. So in the video, basically, we see the band performing on a roof and lots of police officers, lots of fire trucks. We see them coming in and talking to, I guess, like the band manager and the video director saying like, you got to shut this off. This is too many people. We can't control the crowd. Da, 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 da. You have people coming in from Orange County. (laughs) (laughs) They were crossing county lines. But there were a lot of people, but they were all so happy to be there. And what was so cool too is it really was all that footage of the crowd was a real 1987-88 slice of life in downtown right, just LA. Right, snapshot in time. It was. The cars, the people, what they were wearing. The hair. The cameras. People were hanging out of windows and outside of balconies and holding up signs and outside, you know, sitting in trucks and on the street climbing light poles to see the band. And they were just loving the music so much. The band was putting on an amazing live performance. Bono was getting dangerously close to the edge of the roof multiple times. (laughs) Bono is fine in this video. Like, he's got his hair down. We see it back often in his videos. But his hair's down, and he's wearing a patterned black louse and a statement necklace. And he just looks good. He's a good-looking man. He really is. At one point, he says... I think we're being shut down and the crowd boos, but the video continues. So there's extensions, but it really is a Herculean feat to have a live concert on a roof in downtown LA, because I think I even read that it was like at three o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, that's rough. In my mind, I was like, this is not what I remember. But then the next one that I watched was With or Without You. Okay. And I was like, this is what I remember of you too. This is like what cemented in my mind. This was the first single on the album that was released, and it was their first number one hit on the charts. The song is about Bono's struggle to reconcile the demands of being a musician and a partner in a marriage. Bono said the lyric and you give yourself away, is about how he feels exposed as being part of the band. This music video is a culmination of two separate videos that were shot in Dublin in February 1987. What did you think about it? Again, it's pretty simple, right? The videos are simple. It's them performing. But this one's a little more 
edited and it's glossier right like you know it feels a little bit more put together and it's got that sort of black and white it is black and white right it is okay so there are black and white elements to it and then there's also like very muted colors like the colors aren't just vibrant right for some reason like in my mind you choose always in black and white yeah well (laughs) so like those first two color videos I was like what the cover art of the album is black and white the picture of them right because everything's just cooler in black and white I don't care what Paul Simon says <laughs> <laughs> Paul Simon's wrong in Kodachrome sorry he really is like everything looks better in black and white yeah in this video we open on a slick back sexy Bono wearing yes. nothing but a leather vest and statement cross he looks pensive and he's singing and there's something that keeps rising up I think it's light at one time I thought it was steam there's something like all around him and then ultimately all around the band and it's like enveloping him and I don't know it just seems like yeah he's a musical god with the voice of an angel like let me envelop you in light so we see the band in a performance setting and it does that like kind of George Michael thing where it's like band and then him and then right. band and then him and lots of like moody band shots. Which again is what I associate with you too. Like <laughs> at some point, I don't know, the frame is like, it's kind of rotated in a weird way. It's That's a cute. woman in a white sheet. There's so much light and shadow in this video. And like, I think maybe we're seeing some trees and then someone's walking through some water and then we get more Bono beauty shots. Yeah. I mean, this, this is what I sort of came to about the videos is like the videos aren't that profound. The music is wonderful and I love the music. And so I did find myself like not really paying huge attention to the detail of the videos because that's just not what the experience is about for me. Like it's the music and the lyrics and the images told more of a narrative about what was happening in the song. Maybe I would be more drawn into it, but they really don't. So I just kind of was like, well, it's fun to look at them all. But my focus was really on the song. Me too. I feel like everyone knows what it means to love somebody, whether it be in a romantic relationship or in a familial relationship where you're like, I can't be with you. I can't be without you. I'm in this really weird space in our relationship. It's painful to be both with you and without you. Also, I feel like almost every romantic relationship I've had. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think that this really can even transcend romantic relationships. I think this happens in families. I think this happens in friendships. And you can't imagine your life without somebody, but it's complicated. And but being with them is hard. is really hard. But I do feel like it was a little bit of a missed opportunity because it could have told a story, you know, starring like maybe someone on the indie type circuit that we loved at the time, like maybe like a Martha Plimpton, like maybe somebody like that could have been in the video and it could have told the story. I almost feel as we're talking about it, and I don't know if this is true or not, but like, it seems like a very U2 sort of thing to be like, the music speaks for itself. Like we don't need to hold anybody's hand and we don't need to walk, walk you them through. through it. This is what we wrote. We believe that our fans are capable of getting it. And they are. And we are. Yeah. And just leave it at that. And because sometimes when you tell a story, it becomes a little bit trite, right? When you like 
show the whole thing. And and maybe I probably will say this quote again, and it's not an exact quote, but there's a great quote. And I believe that it's from Joseph Campbell about how every story has two types of medicine in it. And it has the type of medicine that the author intended for you to get from the story. But then it has a second type of medicine, which is going to be unique to you. And you're going to pull that from the story. And so if a song is a story, you know, then they leave it up to you to find your medicine in the story. Right. You receive it based on your personal experience. Yeah. Another single on the album is One Tree Hill. The song's actually really sad. It was written in memory of their friend and roadie, New Zealander, Greg Carroll. He worked for the group and he died in a motorcycle accident on an errand for Bono. Bono said... It was a devastating blow. He was doing me a favor. He was taking my bike home. And this is a song that they don't play live. They reserve it for special occasions like when they play New Zealand. Do you ever think about that when when somebody, you know, gets on an airplane to do something, like to come visit you or to go to an event that they're coming to because of you? And if something horrible happened to them, you know, like I think about that. Like you would feel like it was kind of your fault. You know, I don't have that thought specifically, but I do have that fleeting thought when someone, if I'm <laughs> so weird, if I'm at a party and someone's like, oh, I got to just, I'm, I'll be right back. I have to go get ice. Or like my husband being like, oh, you're low on gas. I'm just going to run out and go fill up your car real quick. I'll be right back. Like BRB. It's these like BRB moments when someone's like, okay, I'm just going to go do the thing. Be right back. More than I care to admit, I have the thought like, oh shit, what if something really serious and terrible happens on this nothing thing? I think about that too. Like I think about, you know, every day people leave their houses. They don't know that's the last time they're leaving their house. Which is why I hate leaving my house when it's embarrassingly messy. (laughs) (laughs) What will they come back to? We're like way off topic now, but I used to have an agreement with one of my cousins when we lived in the same town. And I was like, if I should die unexpectedly, please come and clean my house before anyone else sees it. (laughs) This was our agreement with each other. Are you afraid because the house is like might just be messy or because there are embarrassing things to be found? No, I don't. I mean, yes, there are embarrassing things to be found, but whatever. I'm dead. I don't know why I care about like leaving this image that like I keep a clean house. (laughs) You can find all my embarrassing stuff. That's fine. But like, that's so weird. Like, you should be so much more concerned about someone finding your embarrassing things than like, oh, her house is messy that day. Like, who cares about a messy house? What are they going to find? Yeah, I guess I just feel like if it's like not out in the open, then that's just part of like being like, oh, hey, look at that. Plus, everybody has that stuff. Like, it's maybe not all the same stuff, but everybody's got it. (laughs) But like, I just feel like people, I don't know, I feel like they would be really disappointed in me if they saw that sometimes my house is really messy. I mean, it's sort of like the thing that people say like, oh, make sure you change your underwear every day. What if you get into an accident? (laughs) Like that's at the top of your worries. And I have to say, as a nurse, that really is not something that I'm considering. If like somebody is suffering and in need of help. I do understand why this song would be so very personal to the band. It's devastating. Yeah. This was the fourth single on the album, and there is a video for it. You can find it. There's an official video, and basically all it is is just stadium concert footage that was previously unreleased from U2's 1988 Rattle and Hum. Good song. It is a good song. It did reach number 44 on the U.S. charts. 
Another single of which there is a video for is Red Hill Mining Town. And I didn't think I knew this song. I knew the song. Did you? I did, yeah. This album is in my regular rotation of albums. I mean, it's so so good. And it really, really holds up. I mean, here we are, what, now, let's do some math. 31 years later, it's still (laughs) a great album. Yeah, I still listen to it regularly. There was a video filmed for this song, but it was never released. The video ended up being released on the bonus DVD of the 20th anniversary, like super deluxe box reissue of the Joshua Tree. So you can go online. We'll link it to the show notes. You can watch the video. It is Bono and the band in prime 80s form. But at the time, this was not on your MTV. And this video is actually more in line with maybe... It has some context, right? They're in a mine. They are in a mine. So the focus of the song is on the National Union of Mine Workers 1984 strike in Great Britain that occurred in response to the National Coal Board's campaign to close the uneconomic mines. So we see Bono in like a mining cave in a tank top looking fine with miners like all around him. And there's a yellow bird in a cage. What does the bird represent? We like to talk symbolism here. It's a canary in a coal mine. Is this a like a known thing? Do I you not know this? Oh my God, don't I don't think term? I do. Canary in a coal mine? No, tell me. Oh, it's, it's a I'm thing. like, there's a like, yellow bird in a cage. <laughs> okay, so, so the historical content, it's become like a... A saying that people say, and it means something beyond what I've it really never was intended. heard that before in my life. So the coal miners, so canaries have a very fast metabolism. They have a fast respiratory okay. rate. So the coal miners take a canary with them into the coal mine because sometimes you get into a coal mine and you get into an area where there's low oxygen. Right. So if your canary stops singing or your canary keels over, you got to get out of the coal mine because there is not enough oh, oxygen there. Oh my for you. God. So this was an old school way of determining oxygen I, levels. Yeah. I mean, I think they might still do it. I don't, are you now, kidding? There aren't like, I don't know. Meters but to monitor this shit now. One would hope. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the term canary in a coal mine has come to mean like that you're like the early, it's like the early warning sign that something is wrong. Like that they were a canary in a coal mine. It's a juicy bit of information, Kate. I have never heard that before. Yeah, and like I speak so in old lady cliches, like it's my second language. Okay. So there's a reason there's a yellow bird in a cage, Katie. <laughs> it's because they're in a coal mine and they have a canary in a cage, yes. just in case. And then they set them free, right? Like They do. In fact, the bass player comes out at one point and he's holding canaries and he sets them free. I have to mention, because it's worth mentioning, go watch this video, you guys, because there's like a lot of chains hanging around and Bono like hangs on them very dramatically and he looks really good while he's doing it. He and does look good in this video. I was reading the comments on YouTube. And someone named Lois Lane 22 commented, long-haired, sweaty Bono. It doesn't get better than that. Oh, yeah. He can sing, too. (laughs) And I was like, yes. Yes, Lois Lane 22. I am with you. The lyric that says, from father to son, the blood runs thin. It reminds me of Derek Zoolander in Zoolander the movie. He goes to work as a minor with his dad, played by John Voight. Zoolander is, you know, pretty boy model who never worked like a day's hard labor in his life. And like his dad and his brothers are like coal miners, right? They're like down in the 
in the mines and they're getting dirty and working hard every day. And then there's, you know, Zoolander, this pretty male model. And he goes to work with them. And there's this line we quote it all the time in my family where he's coughing, like after a day of work, he's like, <laughs> I got the black lung. <laughs> you know, the blood isn't thick between them. <laughs> well, right. Because I think in a lot of families, it does pass down from Absolutely. generation to generation that people work in coal mines. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that a lot of towns like that is what they do. And then when coal mines are closed for various reasons, it really has huge impacts on the town if no effort is made to bring in another industry. So yeah, it's devastating. So there's a few other notable, I mean, there's a lot of notable songs on this They're album, but yeah, I mean, there's not a video for Bullet the Blue Sky. No, which is such a good it's song. It's a there great is, song. So on a lot of things, when you looked on YouTube, did you get like the official unofficial video? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Bullet the Blue Sky is about a trip that Bono took uh, where he went to El Salvador and he was really heartbroken by the ways the locals had been negatively affected by the U.S. military intervention. He told The Edge to put El Salvador through an amplifier. Yeah, it's a good song. It's, it's a great um, song. Yeah, and, and there were some very questionable policies of... Uh, he was not a fan of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, it's, it was a big thing mm-hmm. in terms of El Salvador and U.S. involvement and human rights. And, you know, and I think it's always interesting to see a critique of the U.S. through someone who's not American, right? Because they see things a little bit differently, mm-hmm. even like in recent events, like looking at other countries... Uh, headlines and things like that has been, you get a different view. Mm -hmm. I did want to talk about Mothers That Disappeared. Have you seen the live performance of this when they performed it with the mothers of children who had disappeared? I haven't. Okay. So this song was also inspired by Bono's experiences in Nicaragua and El Salvador in July, 1986, after U2's participation in the Conspiracy of Hope benefit concerts for Amnesty International. Bono and the band learned about the group Madres de Plaza de Mayo, consisting of mothers whose children had, quote, forcibly disappeared by Argentinian and Chilean dictatorships. While in Central America, Bono and the band met with members of Comadres, a group comprised of those who had also lost children abducted by the government in El Salvador. You know, hats off to you two for shining a light on it. They never shied away and have continued to never shy away from controversial topics and to speak out. I know there's some people who say like famous people need to just keep their opinions to themselves and and not share them. But I think that when you have the ability to amplify voices that otherwise would not be amplified, that there's a certain responsibility that goes along with that. And I think that you two and Bono have done a really good job of that over the years through many, many issues. So I've always admired that about them. And I think that you two really by being so involved with what was going on in American culture and putting out an album that really highlighted injustice and contradiction. I think it made young people interested in what was going on in the world. And it also acknowledged that like young people are capable of more than just, you know, listening to mindless rock music and having parties and stuff like that, that like, you know, young people can have complex thoughts And I think that that is something that's carried through, you know, in current generations. I think that we sort of expect that young people are going to sort of have more awareness of, you know, social issues as they go about their lives. Right. 
And there's another song on this album that's actually your favorite. Do you want to talk about it? I do. It is my favorite. I don't know if it is beloved by everyone. Speaking of terms that are commonly used in my world. So the song is running to stand still, which is a phrase that I've often used to describe feelings that I've had in my life, right? That feeling of like, I'm just, I'm doing as much as I possibly can and I'm making absolutely no progress. I'm standing still. But this song is actually about a heroin addicted couple in Dublin. And which is interesting, right? Because this is back in 1987. And here we are all these years later and heroin continues Mm -hmm. to be a hugely devastating problem. I didn't know that that's what the song was about when I first started listening to it. Although if you do listen to it with a, with a mind to that, you can kind of hear it. But I just, I think it's it's no surprise that I like this song. It has a really strong folk in- influence uh-huh. and I love me some folk music. Um, and I just think it has really beautiful lyrics. Like my favorite lyric is where it says like, you need to cry without weeping, talk without speaking, scream without raising your voice. And just like the, you know, the contradiction of that and the struggle of that. And so, yeah, so that is my favorite song from this album. Nice. I think we also should mention In God's Country. Oh, for sure. So have we mentioned this, that we were total drama nerds in high school? Um, (laughs) I'm sure it's probably been deduced by now. Right. (laughs) Who else can quote couplets from Shakespeare? So there were these like fairly intense high school theater competitions that would happen and very cutthroat, very intense, serious business. Just imagine like all of the very dramatic drama students coming together on a (laughs) high school or college campus for a Saturday competition where like it happens in rounds. Like you go, you perform, you get judged, people get cut. It's intense. And so one year we went with a scene uh, from a play called Voices And the other like big deal people who were there that year were doing a scene from a play called God's Country. Yes. And they used this music as kind of like the introduction. So that will forever be seared in my mind uh, (laughs) in relation to this song. In terms of the album's legacy, last fall, BBC radio listeners voted the Joshua Tree the greatest album of the 80s. There were some good albums in the 80s. That's a tough one. I mean, it's definitely up there. I mean, I think if you look at it from like a really well-rounded place, I get that. I do too. Is it the most representative of what the 80s was musically? Actually, probably not. But like, was it the best? Was it the highest quality? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And according to The Edge, he said, quote, the Joshua Tree changed everything for us as a band. It was written in the mid 80s during the Reagan Thatcher era of British and US politics, a period when there was a lot of unrest. And it feels like we're right back there in a way. Politics are so polarized. We had the privilege of playing the Joshua Tree live all over the world in the last few years. And it's almost like the album has come full circle. We're just thrilled that people are still connecting with these songs night after night, year after year, and really generation after generation. End quote. I'm saying generation after generation. My kids, I wouldn't call them like huge U2 fans, but they definitely know the music. And it's it's music that you feel throughout your whole body. Like it really does touch your soul. It does. It's, it's intense and it's moving and it's just really authentic It's the word that always comes to mind for me. It is. And in recent U2 news, I mean, they're busy writing and recording as per always. They have no intention of slowing down. But last May, 
To commemorate his 60th birthday, Bono released, quote, 60 songs that saved my life. It's a playlist. And we'll link to the playlist in the show notes. You can check out the songs that have influenced him. He says, quote, these are some of the songs that saved my life, the ones I couldn't have lived without, the ones that got me from there to here, zero to 60, through all the scrapes, all manner of nuisance, from the serious to the silly, and the joy, mostly joy. What's kind of cool is he also, along with that, was writing thank you letters to the artists for the music that helped shape his life. Oh, could you imagine if you got a thank you letter from Bono? Bono. (laughs) Fucking Bono. Right. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what a cool way to mark a milestone birthday. Yeah. Right. I feel like mine would be almost all Dar Williams and Brandy Carlin. <laughs> mine would be a lot of Elton John. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, maybe some U2 thrown in there too. Oh, for sure. Some U2. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure others, but yeah, I always say that if there was a soundtrack to my life, it would be mostly Dar Williams songs. Oh, I think mine would mostly be Elton John and Paul Simon. I mean, I think I could probably create a pretty well-rounded list just based on those two alone. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, thanks so much for joining us. If you have any comments, thoughts, or suggestions on future episodes, we invite you to let us know on social media or drop us an email at untitledgenxpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye.